Hello, welcome to This Girl Come, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and in addition to my role as a podcast host and mother of four children, I'm a certified Salesforce admin, specialising in optimising CRM systems for seamless data-driven insights. Today, I'm talking to Jane Gerchkowitz, Chief Patient Advocate at Amicus Therapeutics for over 17 years. Jane is a powerhouse in the world of rare diseases and patient advocacy. Her passion for creating educational and supportive initiatives to improve the lives of individuals and families living with rare diseases is utterly inspiring. During our conversation, we laughed a lot, I learned a load, and I have no doubt you will love it. So let's get going. Hi, Jane. Welcome to This Girl Cam. It's lovely to see you. Thanks so much, Liv, and thanks for having me as as we said earlier, um, I've been listening to these podcasts and the women who you've been interviewing are remarkable. It's really an honor to be included amongst them. So thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you and thank you for making the time to come on. I do appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's get into this then. Jane, can you please tell me a little bit about yourself first and foremost and a bit about your personal and professional story to date? Sure. So I am a native Bostonian. And what that means is I was born and grew up just about seven miles north of Boston and lived there really all of my life, except for college and my first job after college. And until about 16 and a half years ago, when I moved to New Jersey for what has been a wonderful career opportunity. My background, I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers. And as some colleagues have said, two older brothers, that explains a lot. <laughs> but I've had a background that is unexpected in many ways for somebody who always knew what she wanted and when she wanted it and went for it. And then life happened. And as, as we'll probably talk about later, some sliding doors, but really tied with the joy of growing up at, at a time when family, neighborhood, community was just a part of, of who you were. My family was close by. It was a wonderful way to grow up. There was no social media. And I remember a lot of things about technology at that time that people would probably just roll their eyes at today. But it was a, a simpler time, I would say. And it was growing up as a girl, obviously, in a boy's world. It was interesting to see how that evolved as I got older and through education and, and then going into the work world to be able to look back on all of the changes that there have been uh, has been remarkable. At the same time, looking at some of the changes that have been and that are no more is a pretty frightening thing as well. Yeah. I had my college experience at Syracuse University. I was a double major in newspaper journalism and English literature. One was for what I wanted to do, and the other was for something that I loved to do, which was reading. I always felt I went to college and I didn't have a major in literature. I'd never get to read for pleasure again. And that's something that has stayed with me my whole life. I've been a very strong reader, and it's the essence of communications, which is very important to me. My husband, Bruce, and I, we live in Lambertville, New Jersey now. We have two adult children, one who lives in the Berkshires and one who lives in Miami. So we have two wonderful adult kids who are very different and pursuing their own careers and opportunities. And 
love where I'm living now. And I know we'll get into this a little bit more, but it has started to bring more balance to my life. We absolutely are going to get into that. First off, talk to me about when you were that little girl and you always knew what you wanted to do. Did that feed into your journey then into biotech and where you are now? I'm as far from it as I ever would have imagined. I was a newspaper journalist during my college time as as an intern. I had some very strong professional journalism experience. And then my first job, I was a feature writer for Metropolitan Daily in Syracuse. And I was doing exactly what I always thought I wanted to do. And don't forget, this was the time of Watergate. This was the time when muckbreaking journalism was just, you were stirring the pot. You were trying to understand all the evils in the world and wanting to make it all right. And it was very exciting. It was a very exciting time. And I was in print journalism, not broadcast, because back in that day, you know, print was more serious. And it was before any, really any of the technology we have now. And I loved it. Uh, And I only did it for about a year, which was super surprising for a couple of reasons. One was that I finally decided I wanted to move back to Boston. I had it with the winters in upstate New York. (laughs) And when I moved back to Boston, there were not that many newspapers in town. You had some of your local weeklies and, but There just wasn't anything for me at that time, but there was a lot that was going on in corporate communications. And that was really booming because at that time in in the late seven days was the era of high tech followed by biotech in Boston. And every ad in the classified section were all high tech. And I was not a science person. I was not a math oriented person. I was that English major. And the idea of working in a company that today we would call STEM based just seemed very foreign to me. And so I did some editing and then I got a wonderful job for a corporation that was a very niche world. And that was international business insurance for Fortune 1000 companies. So it was one of a group of four insurance companies that identified, minimized, and then underwrote remaining risk in major corporations around the world. And I was brought in to do internal communications and to bring their internal comms, their internal magazine up to another level, and then also worked on collateral marketing materials, sales materials, things of that nature did some PR and we eventually renamed ourselves corporate communications. And we were very much a women department and a male company, no question about it. And at that time there were maybe four women in positions of management at all, myself and my boss at the time, my mentor in corporate communications, and then in HR training. That was really it. The majority of women were secretaries. It was a very different time. And I worked there for several years until my daughter was born. I'm fascinated to learn about when you were in that position of leadership in such a a male environment, if you like. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. It was a very interesting time. The ultimate for me at that time was when my daughter was born and I really felt that 
I wanted to go back to work after the six weeks. That's what you, that's what you had six weeks, but something less than full time. And this was before job sharing. This was before women had more flexibility. And my boss was supportive of it, whether it was three days or four days or whatever it was, she was willing to be flexible. At that point, I was the next in line. She was the vice president and I was, I don't know, I was a senior director of corporate communication. But she had to go to the CEO. She said to him, this is what she'd like. No, it's full-time or nothing. And she's, she's already been here, I think it was seven years at that time. And he, she said, then I think we're going to lose her. And he said, that's a step back for women's life. So now that was, in all fairness, that was 1985. But still, it was, okay, that's, I'm not going back. I'm, I stood my ground and I was home with our daughter and then with our son. And when our son was a toddler, I started to do some agency work on the side, a little bit of, of project work, which I loved. And that got me back in working with a, a graphic designer from New York City and trying to find some clients in the Boston and, and greater New England area. And then eventually so I do something a little bit different and started to, just to go back a minute. I did take some marketing master's level classes when I was at the insurance company. And I really enjoyed that. And one of the things that I learned at that time and that really stuck with me was that marketing and the communications and everything that goes along with marketing is not just for-profit entities, but non-profit entities were starting to see the value of marketing, of promotion, of advertising, of partnerships, of of things of that nature, which up until that point in time, anything that, that, you know, smelled of business was dirty to nonprofits because they were so pristine in their mission and really saw themselves as a different world than the for-profit world. And I started working at children's museums it was a, a pair of children's museums outside Boston. And I came in as their marketing and promotions person. And first of all, I loved the environment. It was so exciting. And I particularly loved, it was one of the very first science discovery museums in the country. And there we go again, science. That was yeah. not my thing, but I started to understand and, and to learn different aspects of, of what they were demonstrating as in a hands-on museum for children. So that's at my level. But what I was able to do there was help with the newsletter and to bring that up to a different level of let's, it was always professional, but maybe the next level of professionalism. And I helped to really give shape to the rental program and different marketing projects to bring people, to bring the community to the museum and vice versa. And I loved it and did grant writing and and brought in grants. And I really enjoyed that work. And my kids loved it. My husband would come to pick me up. I'd say, let's go to Mummy's Museum. They thought it was theirs because that's where I work. But what it taught me was that there was real value in taking sort of a, a business mindset and strategy and applying it in a very, in a way that could actually be comfortable for people where that wasn't, these were scientists. And exhibit designers, this wasn't their area. And it really showed me that you can marry those two things. 
And I enjoyed the work very much. There was not a full-time opportunity there. And frankly, as many people today, uh, we needed health insurance. My husband was self-employed and we always had health insurance through his business, through a businessman's association, which those started to fall off at that point in time. So I, I went on to become full-time director of marketing and communications for a very large social service healthcare agency in Boston. And at the time, there were 21 programs as part of this agency. So essentially, I had 21 clients for marketing and PR. But I also did program development, community work, fundraising, board development, sort of everything in a nonprofit and as part of the management team. And was there for eight years and loved it. And it was very challenging at times. There was a lot of work. And what it often came down to was ask Jane to edit that before it goes out. Ask Jane to help work on this grant because she'll get the writing right. You know? And so it was not just my work, but it was others as well. And again, what it showed was the importance of communication. And I worked with people with far more degrees than I had and people with tons of experience in their areas, whether it was home health care for seniors, whether it was uh, mental health, adoption, immigration, just a whole range of things. Uh, but what I got to understand were what were the needs of the community? Why were they coming to a social service and a healthcare agency? And how did we tell their stories? We started to develop a very nice annual report program from one year to the next, which was a little on the different side for a nonprofit then. And again, it just showed that underpinning everything is the ability to communicate, the ability to give people something to read that they can understand where they're at, and also to develop programs and services that will help a community be educated and be empowered and to help itself, whether it's for an individual, for a family, whatever it might be. So I loved that work. But what was very interesting was around that time that I was there, the whole notion of genetic diseases was becoming a little bit more mainstream. And the idea of screening for carriers of genetic diseases was also becoming more mainstream, if you will. And I worked at Jewish Family and Children's Service. So this was a non-sectarian large agency. And in fact, in, the, in that system, in the Jewish Family Children's Service system, it was the fifth largest in North America. So we had a very large program going on. And there was a biotech company, a pioneer biotech company in Cambridge that came to me because they wanted to better understand how people of um, Ashkenazi Jewish background who might be at a uh, greater risk of certain genetic diseases, how could that community be reached and educated? And how could that community be taught about this health risk? And particularly when that community was increasing, because this was the time that the doors from the former Soviet Union were opening and allowing people of Jewish heritage to emigrate. That. And people were being resettled by Jewish family, children's service agencies around the country. And they were coming to the major cities. So Boston was one of the cities that a lot of people came to 
along with Philadelphia and New York, of course, and Cleveland and Los Angeles and Chicago. Those are the biggest cities that people came to. So you had people with a totally different cultural mindset. They might have had the biological similarities Mm -hmm. to other Jewish people, but they certainly didn't come from cultural similarities. They weren't uh, so ready to believe that they needed to have blood work taken to be tested for something that they didn't understand. They weren't necessarily comfortable with the idea or institutionalizing their health and things of this nature that you can imagine. Yeah. And it was, we had very interesting conversations because marketing to any key audience sounds easy, but it's only easy when those people are, what I say, affiliated, when they're already part of a network. But when they're on the fringe of a network, it's very hard to reach them as part of the general public. So I did this, this work and we were able to at least get information in both Cyrillic and the Russian language, as well as English into the resettlement centers and have the resettlement counselors try to explain in the context of healthcare in the United States, some of the things that people should consider when they're establishing how they're going to receive their healthcare. And of course, many of people coming in were receiving public benefits, but, and then the idea came, there's the need to reach the community and, and different facets of the Jewish community in general about these genetic diseases that had a propensity to people with an Ashkenazi background. And so I was asked to become part of a consortium that included academics and genetic counseling, that included other disease organizations that included this genzyme, which was the pioneer that sort of pulled everybody together to say, how do we teach the community about these health risks in a way that they will accept? And so we, we would meet on a regular basis. There were different articles that were developed. There was different communications tools that were developed. And we eventually decided it would be great to have an educational program for the community. And it would be focused primarily at the clergy because they were in a position to help people understand what the potential risks are of, of genetic disease when couples marry. And we worked so hard to have that program come about. And then when the registration opened today, you'd say crickets. People just weren't, they just were not signing up. And it was a big disappointment because we really had everything ready to go. But there were so many contacts made and so many learnings had. And soon after that, one of the organizations that was part of the consortium, National TASACs and Allied Diseases Association, their executive director was leaving. And I had gotten to know them through this whole process. And they said, would you throw your hat in the ring for executive director? I really don't know much about genetic disease other than what we've just been doing here. I certainly don't understand the science or the biology of it. That's not my thing. And they said, but you understand strategic planning, board development, marketing, communications, and how to professionalize a nonprofit organization. So there it is. <laughs> That's how I went to Road Diseases. 
<laughs> and then, and so I, I ran this, what at the time we always felt was the oldest genetic patient advocacy organization in the country. And I ran that for over eight years. And through that got to me the foremost scientists in genetics, particularly in lysosomal disorders, all the companies that were working in the space at the time, which were very few with Genzyme, still the pioneer at that point. And that's how I got my education. It was a steep learning curve. And, and I think for me, the beauty of it was that I really was not from that world. And yeah. so I approached things in a very pragmatic and commonsensical way, which was, I questioned everything. Isn't it interesting that when they first asked you to put your hat in the ring, your first response would be to say, this isn't my thing and that's not my thing. And in actual fact, once they highlighted the skills that you had that were suitable, that's you actually become the perfect person for it. But it's just, it's so typical, isn't it, for that female response to be, I don't take that box and easily overlook the things that you can bring to it. Absolutely. And that's where uh, convincing to say what you've done is what we need. We need to double our budget. That's your, that's going to be your prime thing is to double the budget. And then it was to optimize the nascent research program that they had. And, so, and all of those things I worked on over the years to really make a significant difference on which so much more wonderful work has been done since in that area. So tell me about the work that you do today at Amicus and tell me more about the parts of what you do that really drive you and that keep you excited in the world. Sure. When I first came to Amicus, I came in as director of public policy, and I had been doing policy work when I was in National TASEX. I was on the board of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. I was very involved in the sort of the umbrella rare disease space as well. I got a lot of learnings there. Just some wonderful people who I worked with and who taught me and who were my colleagues on the board at Nord. And and those were a heyday, right? This is when rare diseases were not a, a a thing that you read about in the paper. It wasn't something that a lot of people talked about. It certainly wasn't something that um, industry was very interested in at the time. And, and rare diseases, you knew of them if you knew someone who lived with one, but it wasn't something that, like what we hear about today, where we see these just amazing narratives of families and what they're living with and what they're trying to do to raise awareness, to increase research to get treatments into the clinic to get treatments approved it was it was not like that no. passion and the need and the frustration and the love was all there then too but there just weren't the elements in the forums like we have today when i went to amicus it was um, initially to work on the policy side and to work with professional associations which i had already had a fair amount of experience and then eventually, within a year or so, advocacy also came to be part of my remit. And for me, it was, well, all of these things I had been doing before, running a patient advocacy organization, I could understand what people, what families, what organization leaders wanted from industry. I had been at, I had been at the patient organization at the time of one of the very first two clinical studies. One was for gene therapy back in 1998. That was remarkable. 
Another was for another clinical study that sadly did not work out, although there were people who felt really felt that they were benefiting from an investigational treatment, but it didn't meet its endpoints. How were they talked to as a community by industry? I, I had been listening to a lot of that. I had been listening to people who were trying to get their kids into a gene therapy trial that they really had to help come up with the money to get their child into the study, issues around access, just around where the field was going. But how did you talk to a community? How did you support a community in its educational efforts? What were the differences that people were looking for? But also, what was the devastation of a, of a diagnosis? And where I was working, these were primarily, not all, but primarily children, very young children, whose families, whose parents and grandparents were getting these diagnoses of not just life-threatening, but terminal illnesses, for which there really was no clinical work going on. And certainly there was nobody working on a treatment or a cure, not on the industry side. And so I took all of that with me. And I, when I became the, the head of advocacy and policy, I inherited um, a wonderful team, small team, but one person was a genetic counselor, one person who was a nurse. And we together were really able to, with the support and the vision of our CEO, who himself was a parent advocate with children living with a rare disease, we were able to start to shape what did we want this thing to look like that was elemental to the company, and yet it was very different at the time. Patient advocacy was not then what it is today. It wasn't as widely accepted as a function of life sciences, which is something that I've always advocated for, that it is a partner in drug development. It is a strategic corporate function, and if used as such and thought of as such versus a support function, things will go a lot better. Yes. Uh, and so I just always believed that. And I took what I learned from where I had been. I took what my own gut was telling me. And over time, organically, we just grew advocacy to be a very integral part of the company, but in, internally, but especially externally in how we developed our relationships with patient advocacy organizations, the leaders of those organizations, the members, individual families, patients. We developed a patient advisory board program that was really the first of its type in the industry, which is still going strong today. And proud to say has been a model for how other companies look at patient advisory boards and the important role that they can provide. And it really was a very organic development of advocacy from what I knew from my experience, from what my colleagues knew as clinicians working very closely with medical affairs, and then, of course, with all the other departments, to say it's the people living with these diseases who come first. We need to ask questions. We need to listen. We need to learn. And then what we need to do is give back to them what they're telling us they would like or what they, would, they feel they need. And I think that's coming, going back to my days as a reporter. You do your homework, you ask your questions, you listen, you, you hear what they're saying, 
try to read between the lines, come back to the four questions, and then you just pull it all together and you say, okay, this piece can help here and this piece can help here, but what are we giving back to the same people? So if they're telling us that they want more information on our technology, if they want more information on how to talk to their doctor, whatever it might be, we felt that it was our responsibility to help them get that information. Sometimes it was literally producing something that a resource that they could take in their hand and bring to a physician for an appointment with a physician. But often it was letting them know that what they knew about their disease and their experience or their child's disease and experience of their partners was expertise. And if you think back 17 years ago, there, there wasn't a term called patient-focused drug development. There weren't really patient-reported outcomes, let alone patient-reported outcomes that were looked upon as part of a drug development player. Th these were the earliest days when if you ask somebody something, they were just so happy to be able to share their experience and tell you what they were living with because they didn't often have people ask them. And they certainly did have people who, when they shared, understood. And that's something that I pulled from working in the patient organization. You'd have a parent call and say, my child just got diagnosed with Santos disease. And they tell me that they're not going to live past their third or their fourth birthday. What's the treatment? Where do I go? Who's doing the research? That's really tough stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet you learn to listen to people and to give them what information you have, to share whatever support you can, to bring them into your fold, bring them into your family as an organization, and at the same time, manage the expectations. You want them to have hope, even when they're in essentially a hopeless situation. And so you have to help them manage that. Uh, and what I learned from those families was, and particularly they were mostly younger than I was, they were having their first kids. My kids are already older. Grace, strength, comparison, empathy. The, these are things that until you experience it with a family like that, or, or unless you've experienced it yourself, you're just not going to. So to me, that's what's so important to bring into a company that's trying to make a difference in people's lives. It's not, and you hear this, and I've heard it in some of your podcasts from some of your other guests, beyond the pill, it's beyond. And it, it is a holistic approach, but it's not saying that this piece of what we do is more important than this piece. There's nothing more important than that patient experience because they're going to tell you every step of the way what it may not work for sure, but what might work. So they're going to tell you what's going to work in developing a protocol and assessments and what they're willing to do or what they're willing to have their child do as part of a clinical program. They're going to tell you what information they need to have to be convinced to have invasive assessments as part of a clinical study. They're going to tell you 
uh, what's going to make a difference to them if they take whatever medicine it is, yours or anybody else's. Uh, the regulators may want to see one thing, but the person living with the disease may want to see something that you can't necessarily have data for. Yeah. Um, what's traditional in drug development, the go-to assessments, they matter, but they may not matter the same way to somebody on a day-to-day basis because somebody may not feel that they're, that the function of a particular organ is changing. They may not sense that on a day-to-day basis, but they may sense pain or they may sense that they have GI symptoms that they can't leave the house. Or they may feel afraid to walk across the street in the rain because it's the the pavement is slippery and they're afraid that one step up to the curb might find them down flat next to the traffic. There's so many different ways to express that. It really is a very big world of what you want to hear from people so that you hope you and your colleagues together can can start to make a difference. And I think that in listening and and understanding families and people living with disease and hearing in an advisory forum what people are are looking for and asking the right questions to get that information, it can be overwhelming because it's both the science, right? It's the science side of things. And if the science of drug development There's the balance with regulatory, but the other side is the emotional, is the human side, it's the humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's what keeps me, that's what keeps my team, and it's what keeps us humble. And as an industry now that understanding the role of patient and caregiver and family, I think it's helping the whole industry become more humble. Yeah. Um, And to me, in being more humble and having that different way of thinking about things can only improve who we are as an industry. And I hope improve how people think of us as an industry in terms of credibility. We, like any industry, we've had our bad actors, we've gotten our rough headlines and things like that. But I think if we come down to the core of why we do what we do, and we have the humility with it, that we're trying to help people, that it will go a very long way. Yeah, I completely agree. Hearing you talk like that, every single thing you said made so much sense to me and it fills me with an awful lot of hope. Talking about getting the balance right for parents and caregivers to provide information and keep that hope at a time when things may seem hopeless really resonated with me. What I was talking about in terms of the role of advocacy has evolved very much over the years since I've been doing this. So what started out as relationships and supporting a community, and which we still do, and developing resources to help educate and empower people so they can make their own best decisions for themselves and their families, that's still very much at the core. But now we're able to take that and to take the objective of always having patient and community insights help to inform what we do, we've been able to bring that all the way forward through market research, through developing materials for approved products, to developing packaging for approved products, to 
different types of surveys and research that are IRB approved, lead to publications that are projects that represent that relationship between the company, patient organization leaders, HCPs, and you're bringing them together to work on these research surveys. You're bringing them together to develop the surveys and then to co-author the publications. And that's another whole level of advocacy. That's helping the community recognize, again, expertise they have and that they are leaders in this disease space. And that you as industry, but as an advocate, you believe in them and in helping them build their capacity as much as to wherever they want to go with it. That didn't exist many years ago in terms of publication. So I think that what's important to recognize is that advocacy is throughout the whole process. It's not just clinical. And I do find that it seems at least through conferences and webinars and things of that, that a lot of patient engagement, which is not necessarily advocacy, but a lot of patient engagement is focused on the R&D side. It is focused around people increasing awareness for clinical study availability, for retention, et cetera, et cetera. But it really is through the whole frame and it's beyond approval as well. And in my opinion, people who are connected to a company, particularly when a company's in its earlier stages, R&D, and then they go all the way through and they become a bona fide commercial company. And being part of the growth of Amicus has been an honor to, to be there and to be part of it. But it's knowing that it evolves the whole way and that that resource that there is, the relationships that exist, the insights that are there are for everything. It's not only around the clinical side of things. And I think we are continuing to see more and more of that, but I hope that we do because my own theory is that a person should not feel that they are treated any differently early on in the process as a clinical patient, if you will, versus a commercial patient and that they are treated with the same level of care and respect. And I think in rare diseases, you do see that. And I think in more common uh, conditions and larger companies that are working on those conditions that we're starting to see it more there as well. So you've articulated really well in terms of how far we have come as an industry with that patient focus. What do you think is next in this world? And what are the things that excite you about what the future holds for that patient focus um, and advocacy? Yeah, so there there are probably a couple of things. One is that there are more tools. There are now more mentors and buddies of people who've gone through this so that when you have families that are dealing with a disease, they're much more proactive than they used to be. And if they feel that what they need is not out there. They'll start a foundation. They'll start a research organization. They will do something on their own. And the beauty of social media is that people can find others like them. When a family gets a diagnosis, oh, there are 10, there are 25, maybe there are 100 people in the entire world that have the same diagnosis. Yeah, nothing you can do. And that parent goes on online 
and they put the word out there and, and they're very, very thoughtful in how they do it. And they're very keen on which networks they start to tap into. And then those networks grow and grow. And all of a sudden they're connected to 249 other families. And now there are 250 families where they were told there were 10 or 25. And from that communities are built and they're built online. And then there's the resources that get put to it. And then there's the ability to create more awareness and get tension. And all of a sudden you start hearing about yet another disease and the family, what they're doing. And I really think that a good part of why this is way, the way it is right now is, was the mapping of the human genome, right? Yeah. The advent of social media and how it's used. And those two things happened at the same time. When I was saying earlier that we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have those social media outlets. You had chat boards that families would type a question or a comment and it would go through the administrator to make sure it was all cool. Then it would get posted. We had telephone chains back in the day because that's how people connected with each other. So it's such a different world and it's happening not just faster, but simultaneously. And so I think that what's next there is that more of these families will continue to become their own organization, their own force. And they are forces. They're forces to be reckoned with. My hope is that there's a level of organization that is more collaborative as opposed to more fractionalized. Because I think that for regulators and academic researchers and industry, that the more collaborative people can be on the patient community side, just works really well because it, otherwise you're dividing your attention. You want to work with everyone. Everyone wants support and there's just so many pieces in the pie. So that's one thing. But the other side of it is that those same patients, patient organizations and families, they're pushing industry to be more collaborative. And I think that we are starting to see more pre-competitive collaboration, and I hope we will continue to, whether it's around registries, whether it's around how to develop clinical study protocols. There's so many ways that there can be collaboration in a pre-competitive way. Uh, I've always likened it to a scavenger hunt. Everybody gets the same clues. So you all start out with getting information at a certain point. But then you all have to go in your own direction and figure out how you're going to get to the finish line. And that's okay. Yeah. And I could talk a lot about this because we see it with research as you see, and, and rare diseases in particular, you see this, where there was one or two companies years ago, today they may be five or 10, and they all want the same information and they're all wanting to do the same market research and ask the question. Patient organizations are small. They're often run by volunteers or a, a staff of one. They're sometimes still being run from the kitchen table. And you're asking them to be very repetitive. They want to be very responsive to industry because they want that attention for their disease. And But at the same time, they're trying to help the families. They're trying to give education. They're trying to give support. They're trying to run a conference or and or webinars on a regular basis. And there's just so much that they can do. And often they're living with the disease themselves or a member of their family is. So 
I think we need to think about ways that we can be more collaborative, that we can help the advocates advocate for themselves so that they can do their best job for their communities and that we can leave some things behind or in how we start working on things. And, And I, one of your previous podcasts, Alejandra said something about we go to these conferences and we're all from different companies and we chat and we talk and we share best practices. And then the notion of collaboration sometimes is left there when we go back to our own projects, our own companies, and our own silos. I think in rare diseases, we see that in advocacy, we see that a little less because we are able to share information. We're not giving away any trade secrets, but the fact is when the patient is what your main focus is and your and advocacy is, in my opinion, is and should always be above product, it's product agnostic, then you can do that. When advocacy is embedded in commercial product, that's different. And I frankly... My I don't see that as true advocacy. You're not real. You're advocating for the product, but not necessarily for the patient. But I think that those are areas where we'll see some growth, you know, continue. There's another area I would like to see more growth happen, and that is in recognizing patient leaders in particular as true experts in their disease and being given the respect for that more consistently, not just in the United States and New Zealand. I do believe that people who are in disease community positions of leadership, that they deserve to hear what is happening on the research front in their disease area, that they can discern the wheat from the chaff, that they should not be considered as general public it's just, this is my opinion. I think that there, and I fully understand and respect the regulatory guidelines, but I do feel that they can evolve. Um, if we're talking about true patient-focused drug development, whether that's on the FDA side of the pond or whether it's EMA side of the pond or elsewhere, um, I think that maybe we can look at some of the guidelines that are there and see how can we evolve those so that they are as respectful of the true leadership role that patient disease patient advocates have, that patient organization leaders have, because it is, I believe it is equal to the expertise of the medical professionals who may treat these diseases. But when you live with it and you know almost every family in, in your country that lives with that disease, there's an expertise there that I think needs to be more highly valued and respected. So Jane, I want to talk more specifically to you now about genetics. Tell me a bit more about the advancing of genetics and your experience of the personal impact of that over the years. Yeah, advancing genetics is something that's been going on for a very long time. And we see ourselves in a place where there's so much more knowledge and understanding about genetics. But even as things really started to ramp up around genetics. What I have been fortunate enough to witness is the real personal effects of that understanding. And I think that there in the past, at least, there's been 
much more of an understanding of genetics and what that means for people and for healthy family planning and things of that nature on the medical and scientific side versus the layperson side. And so when the two things come together, there's been some challenges in, in the past. And, and I, like I said, was fortunate to have witness and hope to give some leadership to a couple of areas going back quite a while. So when I think about the good of genetics or genetic testing and how people can gain information that can help them, their, their families or their families to be, to have the most and the most current information about their healthcare so they can live their healthiest selves is a wonderful thing. But it has, like I said, it has such personal implications. So I'll quickly go back to an experience I had when I was the chief executive at National TASACs and Allied Diseases. And that actually was a lawsuit that evolved because there had been the development of research, rather, that developed the work and then the discovery of the gene that caused caravan disease. And a lot of that work was the result, it certainly was the result of an, the effort of one particular geneticist who had a very strong interest in the disease. And as in rare diseases, typically a close alliance with the patient community, the families affected by this disease. And those families, they helped to raise money for the research both independently and in conjunction with some foundations, nonprofit organizations. They also literally gave their blood, their tissue, urine samples, and they also donated tissues from their deceased children. All of this led to the discovery of the gene. In doing that, all of these families and these nonprofits were doing it for education. So people would be able to then, they would then be able to develop a carrier test and hopefully understand more about the disease and how it could affect fa healthy family planning. What happened was the geneticist who had discovered the gene moved institutions, his work moved with him. And when he was at this second institution, they decided that they were going, the institution decided they were going to patent the gene. And what that meant was ensuing carrier testing that could be done by a variety of labs, be they commercial labs or academic labs, would have to pay a royalty in order to do the carrier screening. And that certainly economically started to sort of take the ability or the access away from some people, right? Because if labs didn't want to pay that royalty, they would just start providing the test. If they did, they needed to add on to the cost of the test, which may or may not be covered by insurance. So it might've been coming out of pocket. And if you think back to the early 2000s, the cost of genetic tests, carrier or otherwise, were far more expensive than they are today, right? Those were the earlier days, if you will. And a gentleman who he and his wife, who had two of their children, had lived with and died from canavan disease, they decided that they were going to take this through the legal system. And together with the Canavan Foundation and National TASEX and Allied Diseases, they sued the geneticist at Miami Children's Hospital. 
And this was covered, it was the first case of its type to really question the ethics of gene patenting, who owns the gene. And it received coverage, certainly around the United States, by all major metropolitan and national newspapers. And what was so interesting was that Michael Crichton, in his book Next, which he published in 2006, so Michael Crichton, as most of the listeners will probably know, is a very interesting medical science mystery thriller writer, physician himself. And he, in this book Next, where he really looked at the ethics of genetics and he looked at what are the possibilities, both sort of the good and the evil, if you will. But within this book, he just took things from, taken from today's headlines. He took issues that were covered in the press, in the mainstream press, that were were happening. What were people doing to affect genetics? What were people doing to understand science? What were they looking at for transgenetics between species? Again, these were the, the early days, but even today, you can go through any newspaper and you can find something that has to do with medicine, science, healthcare, genetics, et cetera. And he picked this up and he had this as one of these inserts about the Canavan gene litigation, and which was pretty amazing to all of us and to my friend, Dan Greenberg, who was the gentleman, the dad, the advocate, really worked, advanced the research to help find the gene and then felt that the system were really not ethical into how they behave with this precious information of families and the children who had suffered from these diseases. The case settled. It was a fascinating experience for me, having to be very involved in discovery and all of that to understand it. And people really looked at it. But again, the ethics of how the medical system, how institutions think about genetic material, biospecimens, and all of that, still, there's still issues around it. For me, what that did and how I had carried that through is really understanding informed consent. And in rare disease in particular, where it's such a a personal situation to try to understand a disease, what causes it, what's the mechanism of disease, what's the potential for treatment, certainly at some point the potential for cure, and how families and patient advocacy organizations, academic researchers, institutions and industry really work together to try to get to go along that timeline toward treatment and cure. But that informed consent is so important. But understanding that partnership, and I think that another piece that I've taken from it is that the knowledge of the lived or the knowledge that comes from the lived experience, the disease expertise that the family the person who has the diagnosis themselves, their caregivers, their parents, they are the experts equal to the researchers and the physicians, the healthcare providers, sometimes more so because they're living with it and we need to respect that. And I think that's what we see now today, these 24, 25 years later from, is that we're seeing the incorporation and the appropriate partnership with individual patients, individual patient families, and certainly with patient organizations in all that we're trying to do. And when we see that may not be happening, I think it's the role of the patient advocate to call that out and, and to remind. 
So that's one area. And another area that I saw where genetic testing and the importance of it, particularly carrier screening, is so important and yet so personal is when a lab may not get a test correct. And when you're doing carrier screening and, and back in the day, enzyme activity was the gold standard versus DNA. Both were, DNA was starting to get used more and more. And now all of these many years later, it is more perfected. But previously, when it was really just the enzyme activity was the gold standard, you had reference ranges for that enzyme activity. You still do. You have reference ranges for every lab test that's taken. And sometimes things could be on the border. And so if a lab interpreted that as a couple, they're submitting their blood for carrier screening for a disease like Tay-Sachs, for example, or Canavan disease. And the lab interpretation of the reference range says one person's a carrier. However, the other partner is not, which means that you cannot have a child the disease. You may have a child who's a carrier themselves, but not with the disease. But sadly, we saw several families where that meant that they went on to have children that did that were born and eventually within three, six, eight months of life were diagnosed with Tay-Sachs disease. And so families, it was very interesting. There were a lot of ethical discussions about whose fault is it. Families felt that if they had correct information, they would have been able to proceed with building a healthy family in a slightly different way. They would have made use of other tests that could be done. They may have made use of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which was still in its relatively early stages then. But feeling they were in the clear, they didn't. So there were some families that decided to sue for what was, is tragic, called wrongful life. You certainly have heard of wrongful death suits in medicine, but at the time, wrongful life, I, I really don't know how many cases there may have been before this, but there were a handful because, and what happened were these all got settled between the lab and the families who were seeking damages, frankly, and the damages were being sought so they could just afford the extraordinary and very complicated medical care and expenses that they would have to be responsible for over not just months, but many years of a child's life. It could be up to three or five years, but in some cases, I certainly knew children who lived for nine and 10 and even more years, which is very unusual. So that caught the interest of some mainstream media here in the U.S., including 60 Minutes, which we all know is does remarkable journalism, but at the same time really likes exposés. And I remember being contacted by them to say they wanted to interview me about the situation because, of course, these kinds of cases did hit the papers. And I, I refused to speak to them. I appreciated their interest but said, no, I wasn't going to comment on any legal cases, but certainly not to comment on these really horrible situations that happen. So genetic testing is very important. It's very personal because it gives people the information to decide how they're going to go on. But at the same time, in these earlier days, when there were these mistakes, and they were very few, but each one was very tragic and dramatic. And 
we think of the ability now to do genetic testing for diseases such as Huntington's disease. And there's a big difference between a genetic test that the result is going to be predictive versus informational. So there's so much that has come out in all of these ensuing years, but we can never really take for granted what it means for the individual. And even newborn screening is like this. So with the results, there needs to be the right context of how the information is shared, which is why genetic counseling is such a critical role in healthcare. Not Genetic counseling is not practiced worldwide. There are some countries where it's much more prevalent than others. The United States is one, Canada is another, there's genetic counseling in the UK, of course. But in many other countries, it's really the geneticist, the physician who is delivering the information or their nurse. And it's very important for people to have the context and to understand, not to just get a a written result or frankly, and I have known people where the lab just calls and says, we've got your test results and it's left on a voicemail. So that's the importance of genetic counseling and for people to understand what does it mean for them now? What might it mean for them or family to have later? And what does it mean for extended family? And that's another really in, important piece, which is those, dise- those genetic diseases, which based on the mode of inheritance, can affect multiple people, not only in a nuclear family, but in an extended family. Certainly, we see that with the breast cancer genes with BRCA1 and 2. So once somebody knows that, then what is their obligation, if you will, to share with family members so that they can then say, I should be tested or my child should be screened or whatever it might be. And how do people relate to that? And I will never forget meeting uh, a genetic counselor at an international genetics meeting. Again, this was in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And it was was part of the ethical and, and social track of poster session. And this person had done research with women who had, the, had found out they had the BRCA gene and they then wanted and felt they, it was their obligation to share the information with aunts or cousins or other women who potentially, based on inheritance, could have the gene. And this was before video calls were available and when people were just starting to really use cell phones and all. And, but people would call their family members or an organization, and, and I had experience with this, we would draft a letter that the person or the couple with the genetic test result could then share, say, I have had a genetic test, this is my result, this means the family is at risk, and here's what you can do, I'm concerned about you and your health. Very interestingly, there would be relatives who would say, oh, thank you so much for sharing this, I did not know, it's very important. I will be screened. I will whatever. And then you have others who are like, not interested. Don't want to hear about Didn't it. Want Don't want to have the conversation. How dare you? Mm. And so that's where family relationship pre-existing. If, you, if there's a relationship that's not so solid and this gets introduced and it's not of interest or it's too threatening to someone else has caused people to cut their relationships off completely. It, it, it's just very interesting to see. And, and look, we, we saw this with COVID, right? That where there's medical information that's available or a medical action 
that's available that can help someone or their family with their health, how people view it. And when they don't view it consistently, that when they don't view it the same, it can really cause a rift. Yeah. And we saw that with, with the diseases that I've worked on before and that we have continued, that I've been working on more recently. It's a very interesting social phenomenon to look at. That's where advocacy, I think, can help. Yeah, it shows why it's so complex because you can't possibly replicate one way of dealing with something because there are so many different areas of complexity in every situation. And that's where patient advocacy comes in, frankly. So when you're a patient advocate at an advocacy organization, at a disease nonprofit organization, you're providing support, education, you're trying to connect people so they can learn from each other, and you can provide some count. When you're doing patient advocacy within industry, you can't provide counseling necessarily, but you can provide information. You can provide recommendations or references where they can find that patient organization where they can, you don't make medical recommendations, of course, but you're giving informational, right? And to me, this, all of this comes back to what has been this, the, the foundation of how I have developed patient advocacy at Amicus and how we think about it and the work that, that my team and I do at Amicus, which is it's about education, sharing. If it's first about listening and learning from people living with diseases, with diagnoses, their caregivers, whatever, and saying, okay, I'm listening from you. I'm learning. I don't live with it. So if I'm not in your shoes, I can't assume that I fully understand the experience, but I can listen and learn and take as much from it as possible. Then I can work with you, the community, the individual, the advisory board, whatever the forum and the connections to say, what are the knowledge gaps? So what does the community know? What do they have? But what are the knowledge gaps? And where can we help fill those gaps with knowledge so people are as educated as they can be They feel empowered to make the best decision for themselves and for their family. And then they can get energized to decide to what extent do they want to advocate, not only for themselves, but for their family. Because to me, truly successful patient advocacy is when the individual, the family, the patient community, the organization can advocate for itself with a very strong sense of where they fit in what we call now the ecosystem, right? So that to me is really important. And again, patient advocacy, and I know we've said this before, is above product. Yeah. So it's about having people just know everything that's available to them. And then they have the information they need to make an informed decision. And decisions are not right or wrong. They're what's ever best for the person, the family the community. And that's, to me, the key role of patient advocacy. And that's where I differentiate advocacy from patient engagement, which we hear so much about. Because patient engagement can, advocacy can include it. But to me, patient engagement is, the way I've seen it, is more around the clinical research process. It's engaging with patients to understand clinical studies, what's available, to engage with them at various 
time points, but it's really for the purpose of getting into a study, getting onto a medication, adherence to that medication. It's very, to me, advocacy can help share information about that, but information that's about product. So that if a person decides that particular clinical study is not right for me, or there are others, and that's their decision, that's the right decision. We, as a study sponsor, those of us who work for companies that are study sponsors might be disappointed, but at least if we feel that person's been given all the information and they've made what they think is their best decision, we have to honor and respect that. And I think that's where, and and again, I think that's where and why there should be a difference in in a corporate organization of where patient advocacy sits. And we've talked about this as well. If it's too aligned with marketing or commercial or business operations, then there's a pressure for advocacy to actually be engagement for certain purposes. Advocacy can inform that work to help people understand patient experience, patient behavior, caregiver behavior, but that's where it stops and you have that firewall. Um, these are all the kinds of things that, that come together and it, it trickles into informed consent, it trickles into lay language, legal documents. When you're working with a patient advocate on the nonprofit side, on the disease side, and they're a consultant for something or a patient advisory board, and you've got contracts with these folks, the documents should be in lay language. They may be very expert in their disease, but they're not legal experts and they should be able to read something and it should be easy to understand. It should feel like it's a very, just like any other communication, it's accessible, it's understandable, and they can act on it and not feel like they don't fully understand what they've just signed. So that's some of these connections from earlier in my career to things that I've been doing in the last decade and a half or so. Yeah, so on that note, you co-founded an organization, didn't you, called Professional Patient Advocacy and Life Sciences. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yes, yeah, so Professional Patient Advocates in Life Sciences is a nonprofit educational organization that I co-founded with two dear colleagues and friends, Jane Campbell and Barbara Webbles, who were also well-known in the advocacy world. And it was really to say, look, There are other functions within biotech and pharmaceutical industry that have their professional associations. Patient advocacy at the time didn't have one. And we were starting to see more conferences or summits or symposia dealing with patient advocacy and what it does and how it does it. But those are really being put together by for-profit conference production companies. Uh, Not that they weren't putting out good information, solid content, but it wasn't educational in the sense that we wanted something that people could participate in, where they could have some rigor and they could eventually get a certification because there's no certification in patient advocacy. People come to it from many different avenues. They may come at have been working in the industry in sales or marketing and felt that they wanted to do more for patients. They may have come out of from the clinical side, either as a nurse or a physician, or they may come at it 
or a genetic counselor or clinical in terms of clinical operations and research. People come um, in marketing, communications especially, is, has been an area where people have started to see the connections with advocacy because, as I just said about documentation and communication is so key in developing these relationships. And so we said, no, we need to do something that's educational, that is going to be very cost efficient for an individual, that is going to give companies a way to understand what patient advocacy can look like, particularly if they're just starting to develop that effort within their organization or for HR, for human resource professionals who are looking to hire people. And what does it look like? What's the phenotype? It's not the same because it's not a straight track. Uh, and so we developed what we call PayPals uh, from that. And we have had seven in-person courses of study. So it's not a conference. It's, a, it's an annual course of study limited to about 50 people plus faculty. We do this, we call it the Professional Advocacy Certification Training in conjunction with Sanford Research Institute, which is out in Sioux uh, Falls, South Dakota. And we go there. There's no virtual component. So when COVID hit, we had to suspend the in-person courses study for a couple of years. We did develop more webinars to keep people engaged and to keep sharing information. And it's really become what we had hoped it would be, which is a way to say that patient advocacy is a strategic corporate function that's intrinsic for the biotech pharmaceutical industry. And it has a very important role in, in all of the work that we do. And that people who are already within patient advocacy Come to PayPal's. It has different tracks. So it has an introductory, like a 101 and a 201. It has so that people can come and they can learn from each other in a completely non competitive environment. People who want to enter patient advocacy come to learn and to meet others and to network. And then people who are in patient organizations on the nonprofit side, we have a track for them as well so that they can explore together not only good governance but good governance as it connects to how you deal with industry. Because that's something that, of course, we see more and more of all the time, which is that partnership between the disease world, the patients, caregivers, families, and organizations, and industry. So this has really evolved out of rare disease, but thankfully we're seeing it as a function not only within rare disease companies, but more broadly. And we feel that this is a course that helps people think about the right way, not just altruistically, but the right way to be a patient advocate, to have patient advocacy available versus something that is transactional and it's purely to achieve maybe a commercial objective. We really encourage people who have an interest in patient advocacy to take a look at PPALS, PPALS.org. And we meet as a course of study in person every May. And we'll be the week of May 12th. We'll be back out in Sioux Falls, South Dakota again. And we're just very pleased with it. And now we're seeing and, and getting questions like, even though people have attended from other countries, it is based in the States. We're now getting some interest to say, are you, would you like to bring this to Europe? 
and it's something that we're exploring. Certainly, it whatever we might do would be separate from anything that's already available to other organizations that currently provide very uh, solid training, particularly for the advocates and the advocacy organizations. This would be only for industry. It's clearly had some significant growth since you started it, so that that need was always there, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, fabulous, fabulous. Yeah, and people do a capstone. So after they attend the course, they do a capstone project. It's not onerous, but they have to complete a capstone. They have a mentor to help coach them through the development of their capstone. And then that's when they get their certification, a completion of the capstone. So in, in patient advocacy, do you, from where you're sitting now, are you fairly optimistic about the future? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a calm sea with no white caps, they're there. And that depends upon the personality of the company, of the culture, what people are used to, how they interpret advocacy. Again, like I was saying earlier, some people just interpret it as patient engagement. You have to help us get the patients to enroll this study or, and I'm not saying I've experienced that, but I know plenty of people who have. And advocacy is seen as a way to get to the patients, which is very different than a way to understand disease experience, to have mutual education and respect and to develop things that can help people to be empowered and to become their own best advocate. Those are really two different things. And um, so so as you always have people moving from one company to another, bringing their culture and experience into a different one, and how do those things meld? And how does that company how does that company's leadership think about patient advocacy? That's where there is always growth. There can be some conflict, but ideally there's growth. And that growth becomes more consistent with the vision of PPALs, for example, and the vision of people who think about advocacy, frankly, the way I do. So it, it's been an honor to be able to be at a company where I've been able to have the, the leadership that was so dedicated to patient advocacy. And given the trust to build something that has really, I think, made a difference for the the people that our company has been interacting with all these years, but also within the industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do have to let you go now, don't I? <laughs> I've taken up yeah. so much of it. But listen, I, I will include the information as well in the show notes for PayPal's, if that's okay, just so that people have the direct yeah, links Oh, please there. do. We've got our dates so people can go online, they can look at it, and, and it is limited. We keep it so it feels like a class. It doesn't feel like a conference, so it's very neat. Okay, I will, I will certainly include that. Absolutely. So listen, I will let you go, and I will just say a huge thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to me. I've learned so much well, from talking to you Jane it's been such a pleasure thank you I am honored that you've had me as your guest especially as I said before when I listened to all the other women you've talked to it's it's an honor to be included amongst them so I thank you for that and it's been a joy to get to know you oh likewise thank you that brings us to the end of another episode thank you so much for listening If you've enjoyed this episode and you're enjoying the podcast in general, please do subscribe via the website thisgirlcam.com or just hit follow on your chosen podcast platform. You can now join This Girl Cam as a member and if you do decide to join, you can look forward to some exciting access-only events coming up in the near future. So watch this space for more announcements there.
Look out for my newsletter, which will take you to see this interview in print and go to the website to find out who my guest is next week. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, X and Facebook, all under this girl cam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you.